potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow. Uh, today, we have the opportunity to be joined uh, by Akshay Talati, who is currently Vice President of Product Development research and innovation and regulatory sciences uh, of the beauty and wellness division of Goop, uh, which is a wellness and lifestyle brand and company. It was founded by actress Gwyneth Paltrow. And there he leads uh, their new product development initiatives and innovation uh, for the company's wellness and lifestyle brands. Uh, initially trained as a pharmacist, and then he achieved his master's uh, in industrial pharmacy at Long Island University. Akshay is a thought leader uh, with an established track record He's over two decades uh, in cosmetics, uh, dermatological, and pharmaceutical product development uh, for over 20 distinct brands for three of the largest uh, multinationals in the space. Uh, he was at Estee Lauder as Executive Director of Research and Development for Clinique, uh, at Unilever as Vice President of R&D and Product Development for the Murad Unilever Prestige Line, as well as L'Oreal, uh, where he was VP of Research and Innovation, Head of Skin Care. Uh, he started his career in the pharmaceutical area in Pfizer. And over his career, Akshay has championed innovation for literally hundreds of products, accumulately valued in billions of dollars. He also serves and advises in several cosmetic societies, uh, strive to positively influence those who seek guidance through mentoring. Uh, in addition to his current role at Goop, he also serves as a founding member of an organization called Skindy, which is a consulting group uh, focused on generating authentic beauty, intelligence, uh, trends, and insights. A lot of interesting things to be discussed today. Uh, Akshay Talati, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. Thank you, Ira. Thank you for uh, bringing me onto the show. And uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all your listeners. Uh, it's pleasure to be on the show, sharing my knowledge, sharing my journey, and sharing some future vision of what I see in the industry and for some newcomers who are joining the beauty industry. Thank you. Outstanding. Outstanding. And uh, yeah, with that, you know, we're, we're, I want to go through the, the whole journey. It's, it's obviously been a fascinating one for you, but um, we want to start off at the beginning, uh, as we typically do. And obviously, you know, I'm saying we, as we chatted before the show, uh, I was also a pharmacist. I'm also a pharmacist, uh, raised in a family of pharmacists. Uh, I think you, you have one extra generation in your family, but talk a little bit about uh, the early days, everything from, you know, your entry into a pharmacy family, uh, how you chose industrial pharmacy after that and a little bit of uh, how you made the move and early into farm pharm and pharmaceuticals but then into the dermocosmetic space where you've been extremely successful to get take us sure. on that early gen sure 
Um, so I was born and raised in Mumbai in an entrepreneur family. My grandfather and father were both pharmacists. So they started a small pharmaceutical company back in Mumbai, and it started in what, 1950s. And uh, that's how my roots were started into the pharmaceuticals. Although my goal during my college years, school years was to become a medical doctor, I chose the step of pharmaceuticals as you know it was just a family inclination. And I love to tell this journey uh, and story to everyone. I am actually a third generation pharmacist, but my son is also a pharmacist now. So we are four generations of pharmacists in the family. So it's a fascinating story I love to tell. Um, so after finishing my college year, college in Mumbai, I went to a city called Belgaum. Uh, I studied my bachelor's of pharmacy over there uh, in the university KLE College of Pharmacy. Um, and I would say that's where my true foundations were brought. The education in India was very theoretical, very knowledge-based, uh, very foundation-based. And that's where I got the basics of biochemistry, medicinal chemistry, phytochemistry, pharmacology. Um, and even the four years I spent over there, I made lifelong friends over there. Some of the friends that I made there are still my friends in US also, and they are in the pharmaceutical industry and I'm in um, cosmetics. So after finishing my bachelor's in pharmaceutical sciences, I decided I wanted to pursue further education. I came over to the US in 1991 uh, to do my master's in pharmaceutical industrial pharmacy mm -hmm. at um, Long Island University uh, out of Brooklyn. Um, and I would say the, the transition was relatively easy. Like I said, my foundation was very strong based in India uh, coming over here. The difference was mainly that uh, the knowledge in India was more theoretical, but the knowledge gained in uh, doing my master's was more practical, more, uh, I would say, more real life uh, situations, actually creating the tablets, capsules and all. However, my research was on transdermal drug delivery. And that's where I really stepped into topical drugs. Now, doing my transdermal drug delivery uh, research project gave me my, led me to my first job at Clay Park, uh, Clay Park Labs based in Bronx. Now they are acquired by Perigo. So there I had a good mentor who taught me actually the basics of formulation on the bench of topical uh, pharmaceutical and cosmetic products. I was involved in creating hydrocortisone, antibiotic creams, and topical muscle relaxants. So that's where I like truly got involved into the topical drug delivery and uh, formulation. At the same time, I also gave my pharmacist license. So I did get my pharmacist license to practice pharmacy. But my inclination was always towards going more into research and innovation. So the Clay Park gave me a good foundation, but I did not see like, you know, that I could grow there. I had more ambitions in my career. And at that time, Estee Lauder, an amazing um, entrepreneurial family-based company out of Long Island was hiring. So I transitioned from Clay Park Pharmaceuticals into Estee Lauder. And Estee Lauder gave me the foundation and the pillar, what I always wanted to achieve in uh, my career. The 22 years I spent over there were amazing. I built my career over there, overseeing about 10, working for 10 different brands. I nurtured my family. I got to do mentoring, mentors. I have lifelong friends over there. Um, 
the two of well when i started estill order i i want to i i want to tell the story because people will think oh wow you stayed 22 years there <laughs> so um i think there's a good story behind it because when i joined estill order they only had four brands people would not believe that they had okay. clinic estill order prescriptives and aramis and when i left estill order after 22 years they grew from four brands to 35 brands mm. so you are in a company where you are seeing entrepreneur spirit you are seeing innovation you are you are, you are seeing drive to succeed you are seeing a lot of opportunities um majority of my time was spent in the largest brands of estill order and clinique but i was also responsible responsible of all the acquisitions like aveda um mac cosmetics and we also started some uh, some brands from scratch um estill order also gave me opportunity to, to opportunity to spend time overseas they sent me on an assignment to japan and china so i was instrumental in growing the brands in asian markets like india china japan um but you know after 22 years i think i wanted to challenge myself something different uh, get out of my comfort zone learn something new uh, acquire new skills um and you know it was different i would say 30 years back when people stayed in a long, company probably retired from there the loyalty mm-hmm. was different now people i think i think nowadays if i want to mentor someone i would say venture out and learn something new try something new <laughs> so i took the step about 6 years ago to go and join murad uh, a company that was acquired by unilever mm-hmm. uh, so i moved to los angeles and to be honest that is one of the best decisions i made so i headed the r&d for them and product development as well as all functions of r&d and what it allowed me to do is get into a culture of california where all the startups indie brands are coming up so i learned something different which i would have never learned at estill order i was um presenting to sephora i was going and creating products with alta um i was um giving um talks to education marketing even creating product names so it it allowed me to grab a different aspect of the industry plus making decisions which are faster because murad was while it was acquired by unilever it was still run as a indie brand um so they took decisions faster they took uh, reactive decisions they took impulsive decisions so it was a true entrepreneurial spirit where they launched products and plus i was mentored by the best dr murad um however that means while i would have loved to stay there in los angeles but for family reasons i moved back to the east coast and i joined l'oreal um now l'oreal was completely different i headed uh, a team of 40 people based in new jersey in a matrix global organization um and i oversaw 10 brands across uh, their mass market dermatological prestige and professional like uh, skincutical cerave it cosmetics garnier l'oreal um and the learnings were eye opening for me also even after 25 years of experience the learnings of l'oreal was different mm-hmm. i had to adapt i had to pivot um and i got to learn so much on how they are able to build legacy brands how they are able to keep the pillar product which is 25 years old still at the limelight how they utilize consumer research to drive innovation so it was very different from murad 
and from estelle order also just, just a different way so like i always give this advice to everyone you never stop learning mm-hmm. and still today after you know um, i left l'oreal a, a year ago and i joined goop uh, uh, past november and um reason for me to join goop was now i have a different um urge in me and the different urge is to now i have to i want to learn a little bit entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and when paltro is the best she created this company out of her home with only eight employees and today is an empire that not only supports her brands but other partner brands also on goop.com um plus it allows me to grow my career and my legacy mm-hmm. so my expertise is mainly in skincare but now i'm getting exposed to a true lifestyle brand of wellness sexual wellness um supplements makeup hair care which i have not been exposed to and i think one of the uh what happens for for people who have a lot of experience is you get stagnated you you become so much experience and expert that you feel that you sometimes know it all and what you are doing is the right way of doing things and i think that's a trap and so i took up on this and you know like while i have a lot to offer offer to goop i am learning as well and i think this is this is good because you know i am building step by step onto a further bigger legacy um so i think in a nutshell that's my uh, journey in the career i can i think i can speak about uh, skindy also later but in a nutshell this is my journey i if i want to give a quick advice is always venture out of your comfort zone try something new uh, don't be afraid every experience you get is a good experience um, i know it's initially you feel that fear in you mm-hmm. that drives you to learn more and take risks so wonderful yeah real real really really awesome charity actually i, I just uh, uh, going along there with you through the years it's it's just been uh, uh it's been fascinating watching this and and, and you hear, listen you talk about these transitions and and as you know um a couple of decades ago i think our paths crossed at one point when i visited uh in a couple of careers uh, ago uh, essay um and, and you know the the, the things is something a couple of things stood out in my mind um at the time because i you know i came out of sort of glaxo smith klein days and you know I, i visited and uh two things hit me number one i'm standing in a uh, a cosmetic company and i feel like i'm standing in any other pharmaceutical company the, the the degree of sort of the technology and the sophistication of the research that's going on on the other hand you know once again going back to the pharmacy story i um although i only have two generations of pharmacists in my family my father was a little older so i sort of consider it there's three there but he was a compounding pharmacist uh old school style so not this you know make viagra work a little faster but actually from back in the 1950s when the doctor and the pharmacist talked and they could really create something together and when i look at sort of the what i'll call the ingredient ecosystem uh that you have available to you uh in the cosmetic industry uh it's more than just sort of the pharmacist side of things right where we're creating this new drug uh, we have otc drug ingredients cosmetic ingredients soaps and then all the respective combinations that you can make and as you were saying delivery systems as well so the ecosystem that you play with to innovate is really broad can you talk a little bit about this ingredient ecosystem and how even today it helps inform you know your strategies for creating new innovative products 
Yeah, um, you know, and I just wrote an article about this uh, like a, a year and a half ago. Yep. But you know, before going into the ingredients, let me give a little insight into how the innovation structure works at a large multinational corporation versus a smaller indie brand, right? Okay. So I think it's a good perspective to understand that on how the innovation is driven. So in the larger multinational corporations, your innovation structures are divided into three groups. One group is like you can call the design group or the invention group or the new venture group. Mm -hmm. They are literally working on technologies four to eight years out. So they are the ones creating new biologies, new molecules, new sciences, new patterns, um, new ways of mechanisms. So these are, I would say, are territories that sort of hit the drug territory where they're truly working on, a, let's say, a new molecule for microbiome or a new molecule for sunscreen sciences and all. Mm -hmm. So that's the new venture. They are not driven by marketing, but they are driven by true sciences. Um, then you have the mid, mid layer, like an applied technology group or an application group or a design group. So this group is more in tune with the current trends, um, the current gaps in the marketplace, uh, they are applying a little bit of the far-term innovation along with the current-term innovation and creating platform technologies. So they are partnering with raw material suppliers. They are creating new product forms. So let's say there is water, but now we want to create sparkling water that will fall into this territory. So they are incrementally innovating. And then you have the zero to three year calendar group, which is basically who works with the marketing teams to uh, meet gaps, meet uh, incrementally uh, advance your formulas, make better packaging, make better formulas, um, upgrade formulas. They are the closest working with the marketing and brand partners to um, keep on con continuously uh, upgrade to the three year calendar. Now, if you look at, um, and um, the most of the consumer insights are driven in the uh, zero to three year innovation groups. And I would say three to five year innovation groups where the consumer insights are in, um, inspiring their innovation. Now, if you compare the indie brands or the smaller brands, all these three are one group. So, which allows them to be faster, nimble, reactive, and take more risk. And there is a reason why all the multinationals are acquiring the indie brands because they can do some things faster, but they cannot. Like, you know, if you look at all the companies like Unilever, Estee Lauder, PNGs, they are acquiring all these smaller startup companies because they are doing things faster and better because they're able to take risk. Yep. Now going to the ingredient size side. Um, what do you see? Like, you know, I think there are a lot of perspectives on this. Um, I think what we see as innovation in the beauty industry are not really breakthroughs. There are very few breakthroughs that have happened in the beauty industry, right? It happens maybe every five years, 10 years, there is a true breakthrough. Mm -hmm. What we are seeing is more incremental subconscious marketing driven innovation. So you will see a new brand positioning, you will see a new mission, you will see beautiful packaging, you will see products inspired by beauty, beauty in Korea or um, China. So I think it's more about 
branding. Uh, there are innovations, but I think the most of the innovations that have happened in the beauty industry over the last 10, 20 years is based mainly, mainly in raw materials. Raw materials to improve sustainability, raw materials to come up with um, preservative-free technologies, raw materials to come up with animal-free ingredients, raw materials to um, come up with uh, regulatory concerns on environmental issues, things like that. But the raw materials that have come are not, I would say, true scientific breakthroughs to drive performance. The reason being, obviously, cosmetic is also, um, you know, it has its limit because it cannot go into the drug territory. Right. So there is the border of drug and pharmaceutical, drug, pharmaceuticals and cosmetics. So what, what we have seen over the last um, 10, 20 years is recycling and uh, uh, cyclical trends of the same historical ingredients. So you will see plant ingredients repositioned as adaptogens, plant ingredients uh, repositioned as, oh, Ayurvedic materials or traditional Chinese materials. You, you will see ingredients from Amazon Valley. You will see, well, let's say we had mushroom 15 years ago. Now you will have biofermented mushrooms. <laughs> you would have... Um, uh, let's say XYZ natural material before, now you will see a synthetic version or vice versa of it. So you will see more purified ceramide, you will see more purified plant extract. Even if I have to look, um, some of the ingredients I worked with when I started in the cosmetic industry, the most of the hero ingredients were like niacinamide, um, hyaluronic acid, peptides, vitamin C, um, alpha hydroxy acid. They are the same hero ingredients I still work with. Slightly some flavors have changed. We you probably use higher levels there. And even the base ingredients, the base ingredients at that time, I used to use like petrolatum, glycerin, uh, oils, butters, waxes, thickeners. It's pretty much the same. I think we have probably made it more purified now or maybe a little bit more elegant. But mm -hmm. overall, broad scheme of things, it is very similar. So I think it is more about cyclical trends um, and adapting to current. Um, going forward, I think um, innovation will keep on happening in the beauty industry. And it, it's just a definition of what innovation is. Mm -hmm. Innovation could be meeting sustainability criteria. Innovation could be uh, coming at easier way of more convenient way of doing things like you, you have a sunscreen which you're applying instead you just spray sunscreen. So it's probably more modification, but I think it's more incremental innovations that are keeping on happening in the beauty industry. Um, one other thing I will think is that over the last probably 20, 30 years in the beauty industry, chemistry was driving the innovation. Mm -hmm. I think in the next 10 years, the next decade, biology will drive chemistry. Yep. We will see more of the microorganism, uh, biotech beauty, uh, genetic engineering of microorganisms to create new technologies. So I think that will be the advancement uh, in the beauty industry. Plus the beauty industry will keep on bordering the drug territory. Uh, of course, makeup color is different, but again, still we will be keeping on bordering the drug territory in terms of performance. Got it. And, and just for those that are watching and listening, um, uh, the uh, actually had a, uh, an article, Does Beauty Desperately Need a New Hero Ingredient? It was from a few months ago in Cosmetic and Toiletries uh, Journal. So I, I, I suggest everybody uh, Google that one and, and take a look. Um, but, but sort of 
continuing along those lines and, and this concept of, of the new hero ingredient and, and, and this, you were mentioning this move from chemistry to biology. Um, I, I'd love to just get your thoughts, ideas on, on some of these uh, niches that you're, you've been talking about. And I think the first place um, I'd like to go and, and get your thinking is, is in, as we were just saying about the microbiome before, um, obviously the microbiome uh, beyond the gut microbiome uh, has become very exciting in recent years on, on all different fronts, especially in skin health. And I've seen there's a lot of major conferences going on specifically on this theme. Love to get your top line thoughts on um, the microbiome, not just from the perspective of, you know, as you were saying, using microbes to obviously make stuff for the skin, but also the, the microbiome that is there, uh, ingredients and, and, and strategies for uh, using it to, for, for health and beauty. Yeah, so um, a lot of the ingredient trends or um, the, I would say the broad trends happening in beauty are a flow over from the food and nutraceutical industry. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of the examples, uh, resveratrol, glucosamine, uh, moringa, now ashwagandha, amla, it's all a flow over from the nutraceutical and food industry to them. And I think it is because that beauty industry is more emotionally driven. So something which is a buzzword out there in the industry, which is easily recognizable, it, uh, I think it, it sells, right? right? And plus the people who are already in the food industry, they feel, okay, how can I increase the revenue? So let's go into the beauty industry. You, can, you are seeing the same in cannabinoids right now. Um, yep. that it, is, it is coming over to the beauty industry. I think um, microbiome is a controversial topic. So scientifically speaking, it's an amazing concept. However, instead, when, when it came over, pushed into the beauty industry, instead of really going into the depth and understanding the science of microbiology, about microbiome on skin, how to influence it and how to alter it permanently, I think what had happened is that it was force-fitted and retrofitted into the beauty industry. Mm. Because the buzz was, was already out there, everybody wanted to just jump in onto the trend. And what happened was automatically raw material manufacturers, what they did was they took their existing library of ingredients and showed that on skin, it doesn't damage the barrier or it doesn't alter the microbiome or it is microbiome friendly. And suddenly you saw a flood of ingredients in the market, which were not true scientifically driven ingredients, but they were just the buzzword of, oh, it is prebiotic or postbiotic or microbiome friendly or um, skin balancing. And a lot of the brands, what happened was that in, there was a pressure Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And I personally, to be honest, I also fell in that pressure. The pressure was to, oh, we need to have a microbiome product out there. And what happened was even, even simple. If you throw, if you splash water on your face, it will alter your microbiome. Right. Mm -hmm. so typically, if you te test any of the existing material, you can show something positive or negative on the microbiome. So what happened was, and well, and altering, truly altering the microbiome of a skin is a drug claim. So what happened was most of the brands now all, all what happened they were now claiming making similar claims of skin balancing does mm -hmm. not does not harm skin barrier or microbiome friendly. Um, uh, I think the microbiome is a topic is so complex is like um, 
you know, retouch our face 23 times in one hour. <laughs> and our hands touch so many surfaces. Yep. Plus, while you're touching your face 23 times in one hour, about half of the time, we are also touching our mouth, eyes, and mucosal membranes. Plus, within each household, we have our own microbiome. Like, the couples share a microbiome. Yep. The child and mother share a microbiome. Uh, plus, microbiome is influenced by weather, where you live, what you eat, your um, extrinsic uh, conditions. So it's very complicated. If I have to say, while the science is good, I think nobody has cracked the code in the beauty industry to truly alter the microbiome for permanent basis. So even if there is alteration of microbiome by a cosmetic product, I think right now it's temporary and it reverts back to what your, uh, you, what, what your skin adapts to. So I think it's still, there's no breakthrough. There is no home run. I think still there's, still there's a lot to be done in truly altering the microbiome. And the problem is that the consumers are so confused. So in, um, in a saturated market, you have people saying there are thousands of products with the word microbiome in their claim. And then maybe there are a few companies who truly have good science and that those companies are getting lost because consumers can't distinguish which one is the true microbiome product yep. that they should buy or the ones which are marketed as microbiome. And um, the other side is that consumers cannot perceive a microbiome claim. So if somebody's saying it balances your skin microbiome, healthy microbiome, there's no way a consumer can distinguish whether it's yes or no. Mm -hmm. Continuing along that theme, which you introduced us to now of this flow from the food and dietary supplement space to uh, cosmetic and, and, and once again, bringing in the, the emotion side here, um, beauty from within. Um, now, this is something that um, uh, has been sort of in the works. There's some, been some of the, the larger consumer packaged good companies that have tried this uh, over the last decade. And, uh, and you know, I don't know what we're talking about, inflammation, oxidation, a variety of other uh, mechanisms that, you know, obviously a lot of foods, our phytochemicals and so forth impact. Love to get your insight on beauty from within strategies and obviously, you know, at Goop, you're, you're not just a derma company, you have grander wellness stuff going on, but love to have your thoughts on beauty from within concepts. Yeah, so I am a strong believer that we are what we eat. Um, and, um, you know, being brought up in India where Ayurveda science is very predominant, even when I was a kid, my mom used to feed me like concoctions of like herbs and mixtures. Oh, you have acne, eat this or, you know, things. So there is a science um, out there. And I truly believe that what our skin is, what we eat internally. Um, topical products, right? Um, most of them, I would say, do not penetrate below the epidermis. But if you have good food, healthy food, which is truly bioavailable, it has higher likelihood of going to the dermis from within. Um, but so I think the perspective here is that if people truly have a good balanced diet, holistic living through active lifestyle, you do not really need the tablets and capsules to supplement that, 
right? It's um, because I think uh, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, there were no tablets and capsules or vitamins to take, right? If you people had a balanced, healthy diet. But now what has happened is that our lifestyles have changed. People don't have time. People want convenience. We uh, people's BMIs are increasing. We eat a lot of refined sugars and all. So what has happened? Um, and uh, we are influenced by uh, what's easily available on the supermarket store. So that's where the need of the supplementation of um, uh, superfoods or um, you know healthy wellness living happens. Um, there is always that quest that, oh, let me take a capsule and then, uh, oh, it will give me longevity for life. And usually what happens is that people do not follow a good healthy lifestyle throughout their lives. And what happens, oh, I got acne. Let me now go and buy ginger capsules or these capsules and it will cure my acne. It doesn't work that way. So like nutritional supplements and all, it's not an overnight, it's not allopathic medicine. It is a, it is a lifestyle that you have to follow through the life uh, eat healthy, live healthy, be active. Um, and also like, you know, the, the food industry and healthy living, it's not new in the Asian markets. Uh, Asian markets already have collagen supplements, they have powders, they have cookies and food and chocolate with water. Do you need all that? Probably not. But I think it's so the branding, marketing, the convenience that, oh, I have a, uh, I have a cookie on one side, $2 and I have cookie with collagen at $2.25. What do I buy? Obviously, you'll buy the $2.25, right? $0.25 more, you're getting collagen with the cookie. So um, I think healthy living is also a lot of, there are two, two aspects to it. Uh, intrinsic, because a lot of us, what we are is genetically born. It's hereditary, it's hormone as we age, it's intrinsic. And a lot of it is the extrinsic factors, extrinsic factors, um, which is epigenetics, environment, the food, the smoking, the alcohol, that all has an effect on what we are. Um, I think pop, the nutritional market will keep on evolving. It's not going away. It, people buy, 50% of people buy naturals now just by the mark, uh, you know, they believe naturals is better. Um, it's not going to go away. And you will see more of the ginseng, the tomatoes, turmeric. It will keep on. Even Starbucks sells uh, turmeric chai latte, right? Okay. So it's, if you see, it's all emotional, um, appealing to the consumers. Is there anything harmful or no? Probably not. But it's just that that's the trend. And continuing on that trend, um, I was, we've done... Um, several shows on the evolving, well, I term longevity biosciences space. Um, and it was a fancy way to say anti-aging, but um, in recent years, this sort of segment of the biotech industry has sort of come out of sort of embryonic mode. Um, yet, you know, there's obviously uh, a major challenge here. It's, you know, ultimately how you do a 20-year long clinical study to see if people... 60 years old or not technically going to be 80 in 20 years, but maybe 75. Um, however, <laughs> uh, you know, they're looking for different ways, different biomarkers and, and so forth to sort of stand in as proxies. I look at skin as an awesome proxy, right? Uh, it's the largest organ, as you were saying, in the human body. Uh, and there's a lot, once again, going back to sort of the pharmaceutical-like research that goes on 
and that you've been involved in looking at the skin, um, that we can learn about aging uh, and learn more about longevity. Talk a little bit, if you would, about your visions uh, today, looking out, uh, as, as far as what we can be doing uh, with regard to longevity, biosciences, and skin. Um, so I think the lot, um, over the last 50 years, the longevity science has advanced tremendously. Um, probably uh, 30, 40 years, our life expectancy was in the 60s. Today, life expectancies, we are probably in the late, mid 70s. And I think probably in the next 100 years, our life expectancy will call, cross 100. And I'm sure it will happen. Um, that I think what has, what, what has to be a fundamental shift is that over the last 50 years, the longevity science has focused on how to uh, treat, treat disease, polio, uh, cancer, heart disease. So we have excelled in treating disease. But I think where now the fundamental shift should happen is finding the mechanism and the underlying causes of these biological system on why we age. Aging was never considered a disease. So same thing, skin aging was never considered a disease or even um, as chronological aging was never considered a disease. So what has happened is the science has not evolved in that category, but in the categories where you immediately want to prevent a disease like you know heart failure or alzheimer's or things like that um and there are certain areas where we have lacked also so there is a lot of areas where we have not tapped into yet uh like respiratory diseases and endocrine diseases and things like that and musculoskeletal so what has happened is that the tail end of people's lives in their 70s they are living in um, you know like uh, a compromised life right yeah. so i think that's where uh, the some science of uh, some sciences will evolve i think so what will happen in the next like i said in the um, the um, the true basics of aging will be where the targets will be. Um, I think we will also see that uh, there will be a big shift in now focusing on the wellness and physical wellness. I think instead of treating, I think like, like what I said, a healthy living is not just, oh, you found that you have cancer, now let me pop turmeric pills. No. Right. I think it is all a journey over your last 50, 60 years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think over the last, the next decade, we will see a lot of uh, artificial intelligence-based diagnostic wearables, uh, robot robotics to help the emotional and mental well-being uh, for people in their late uh, 70s to help them go through their lives. Uh, there will be a lot of gene therapies and cell therapies to treat aging and age-related um, uh, degeneration. Um, I think we will also see 3D organ printing and growth hormones. Now I talk about all this from a true pharmaceutical, but cosmetics is no different. So whatever I mentioned is already sort of in the cosmetic industry also. Yep. We already see artificial intelligence in there. Of course, it's just a buzzword, but I already see people saying, oh, I have um, grouped 20,000 different skin types. 
So now I artificially intelligently making skincare for them. I can make artificial intelligence based skincare. Um, I'm also 3D printing uh, packaging materials. I have growth hormones. So that's another area where you will see a little advancement in skin biology. We will see regenerative beauty. I'm not talking regenerative beauty from plant cells, but human stem cells mm -hmm. that uh, will be coming into cosmetics. I'm already seeing it's happening by some, um, some companies which are hybrid pharmaceutical yeah. and cosmetics together like um, you know, Skin Medica and all, they're already jumping into that bandwagon and we will see more advancement over there. Uh, there will be tissue engineer, engineering, which will happen. Um, I think at the end of the day, there is um, some responsibility that people will have to take that um, there should be truth, mm -hmm. information sharing. There should be ethics in what they are doing for betterment of the society. Because at the end, you don't want it to become another fluff story. So right. whatever you're presenting, be it ethical, be it scientific, and let uh, that science and ethics drive your business practices and um, make it affordable. So mm -hmm. if you have a new therapy, either it's in drugs for orphan drugs, rare diseases, or even in skincare for people who are suffering from melasma, psoriasis, eczema, if there is a true breakthrough, make it affordable. Don't make it only for the rich, make it affordable. And I think those are, you know, those are awesome points. That is sort of led into my next question, but I, I was going to, obviously, you know, from uh, Estee to, to Unilever to L'Oreal, now Goop, you know, you've been actively involved in, in what we broadly call the open innovation process. Uh, say a few words, if you would, about just, you know, what you look for, whether it's a startup company or a university lab, they're coming into your office today, I want to pitch you on this new ingredient or this artificial intelligence program or whatever it may be. What are you looking for? What, uh, again, you know, says, hey, I want to talk to you, uh, the other person, you get out of my office. Uh, talk a little bit about how you look at open innovation uh, today in, in your current role. Yeah, so um, at Goop, all of our innovation is driven with a purpose and a mission to make lifestyle choices better. Um, and I think our main philosophy is that if somebody offers me a new material, just because it's different doesn't mean it's better. So then I have to make a choice, whether it's truly a brand-driven marketing story or is it true innovation? Um, so most of the ingredients we use in Goop is all at efficacious level. We don't add fluff ingredients. People would think that uh, Goop is an indie brand and we launch products within six months to eight months. Actually, it's reverse. We have a full-fledged 18 to 24-month product launch calendar, similar to the multinationals. So even though we have a lot of open innovation, we don't cut corners. Every product is clinically tested. Every product is science-based. Um, so what I'm looking for, um, so we have an internal scientific team, which we call the Goop Lab. And um, it is a mix of scientists like myself, we have toxicologists, we have product developers, and we come up with the ideation and concept. So the ideation and concept is sort of created internally, and then we pitch it to outside partners, some credible partners, somebody who are just doing startups. And sometimes we may not even want to launch that products, then we actually 
support the brands who have that idea and we sell it on goop.com. Um, actually, since that I just joined four months ago, Goop, and I've already signed about 50 non-disclosure agreements <laughs> or partnership agreements because that's how we are. We, we are truly open innovation. Um, I think what I'm looking for in Goop is products that will make a difference. Our consumer base at Goop is different. They are provocative. They are bold. They want to, they are not afraid. They are aspirational. Um, so I have to um, address their needs. Mm -hmm. It has to be substantiated. Um, and I know we stand by clinical beauty for skincare, but we have beyond that. We have a lifestyle message. We have a... a ethics-based product uh, um, launch will, and we blend it, right? So, you know, sometimes, and I have gone through it because I have in the career, sometimes you may make the best product with the best ingredients and it could be all scientific scientifically driven, but it will not sell in the marketplace, especially in beauty, yep. right? So you have to blend a, both a mixture of science and nature together so that it's emotionally appealing, but truthful. It has to perform and it shouldn't be like fluff pseudoscience. It right. has to be ethically based also. So that's what I'm looking for. Like I'm part, I'm, uh, I'm partnering right now with a company who has created uh, vegan based human collagen and elastin. So um, will it make a difference? I have to still clinically test it, but it's an avenue what I'm giving, right? Mm -hmm. So there's collagen and elastin out there, which is fish derived, animal derived, but I am now trying to tap into some territory which can give benefit to my customers through our mission statement of having vegan products. Outstanding. Um, actually, talk a little bit, if you would, about um, Skin D. I, I mentioned that at the beginning where, in, in addition to obviously responsibilities, you also do uh, consulting in, in uh you know, in this area, say in terms of what you're doing there. And at the same time, um, you also sit on the board of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. Say a few words, if you would, about that as well and sort of what's happening in the sort of the general ecosystem of cosmetic uh, chemistry nowadays. Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. I So I joined, one of my mentors pushed me in joining Society of Cosmetic Chemists in uh, what 2008. 2007, actually, I became the chair of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists for the Long Island chapter. And, you know, once I stepped into it, I think that feeling is contagious. Uh, learning is contagious. The networking is contagious. And most importantly for me is paying it forward. What I gathered, what I gathered through my knowledge over the years, this gives me a uh, society of cosmetic chemists gave me a platform to pay it forward, and it's mm -hmm. contagious. I think um, there is people need to learn kindness, empathy. Sharing is important for yourself to grow. I think when you share some knowledge, like right now, I'm sharing this. I think I'm gain, gaining something myself. Uh, and it's a feeling that I think it's it's very hard to describe, right? You are being able to share your knowledge. I think that is important. And, you know, like, um, and every, if you see at every pioneer in the industry, could it be Elon Musk, 
Steve Jobs, they all shared their knowledge in terms of various, various platform by launching a new um, technology out there or just sharing their patents or information. Um, so in Society of Cosmetic Chemists, I had several roles, um, chair chapter, I am in the Cosme uh, Scientific of Committee, com uh, Committee of Scientific Affairs right now, and I've been chair also. Um, Skindy is different. You know, um, I wrote an uh, article on mentoring a couple of years back, mm -hmm. and, and um, that ignited a passion on inside me to truthfully share knowledge outside. Um, we right now live in, a, live in an age where power of voice is important, and consumers want authentic information transparency, sincerity in information they receive. And in a saturated market where you have paid influencers, brands, EW, the websites of um, NGOs and uh, other uh, information out there where there's a lot of mis misinformation mm -hmm. spreading as an industry uh, veteran, I, I mean, I'm not veteran yet, but as an industry expert who has been there 20 something years, you have a responsibility to spread knowledge truthfully. So one of my friends in the industry, Maya, when she had this idea of Skindy in 2020, she approached me that actually I have this vision on creating a website, a newsletter to sharing uh, authentic beauty information. It would be nonprofit. We will not take any money from any advertiser. We will buy our own products. That automatically intrigued me and I jumped on it. So, and then Skindy was born in January 20, 2021. And so far the response has been amazing. Um, you know, we had the fear because there are so many newsletters and magazines out there, beauty magazines, that we would be considered generic. And that actually pushed us outside the box to think differently, like how to give content which is authentic. Um, and uh, so far, most of our readers are in the scientific community, a few marketers, a few product developers, few, few influencers. Our growth has been mainly on the website, in the newsletter. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this year we want to target actually getting the newsletter or our Instagram into the face of consumers, because I think that's where we need it most to influence the consumers in making the right decision. That's awesome. And uh, we will put uh, links to Skindy in the bio of the show, as well as, and you mentioned the, um, uh, the paper you wrote is titled Mentoring Matters, Strategy to Get the Most Out of the Mentor-Mentee Relationship. Um, we'll link to that as well. But, um, you know, you've been talking a little, a lot, and you've been very active on the, on the mentoring front. Say a few words about some of the mentors that uh, were there for you, uh, the ones that uh, really kept you and inspired you uh, along this amazing path. Yeah, you know, uh, I think mentoring is a passion for me, mm -hmm. and it's because I would attribute my career journey to my mentors. And um, I, I tell it to all the people who I mentor that mentors do not have to be from your work culture. Okay. Mentors could be in your family, could be your friend, could be your best friends, uh, could be somebody outside, somebody you inspire to be, because somebody could be your role model. Um, so just to give a little bit example of the mentoring through my journey, you know, the, the 
I, I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I got uh, inspired from somebody in my family to go in the path of uh, pharmacy. And I would mm-hmm. consider a person, my one of my mentors at that time, that was in 1980s. Um, coming to US from India was through the guidance of my friend. I would mm-hmm. consider him as my mentor. He walked into my life in a certain stage, he guided me and guess what? It worked out perfect, right? I am doing what I am. I grew a career out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is my growth at Estee Lauder. Uh, I had, uh, so that was an official mentor. I had an official mentor who was given by the company and that person really took the time over a period of one year to understand me and guide, in, guide me in my career. He took the initiative, the effort to see my background, what I am capable of, and it propelled me. And from that day on, um, uh, and it was not about getting a promotion. A lot of people just come to mentors to get a promotion in work. You should never, never, ever think that. Yes, promotion in work, advancement is important, but don't find a mentor just to doing that. And he did not. And that's what I most appreciated about it. Even me going on assignment to Asia, it was out of my comfort zone, spending a year in Asia in an unknown country, uh, you know, driving innovation over there was uh, by the mentorship of my uh, executive director of R&D at that time, Harvey Gideon. Uh, people may know him and he guided me, Akshay, do this. He sent me to India also. Even leaving Estee Order and going to Murad after 22 years at Estee Order, I, I was shit scared. But <laughs> you know what? Uh, a mentor drove me that, Akshay, what's there to lose? You're going to gain so much. And guess what? It was the best choice of my career. So I think what I want to tell is that keep your options open. Um and always find two mentors. I think I wrote that in my article also. There are people around you who are very similar to you, right? Uh, so they, they are, there are two kinds of mentors. There's inspirational mentors, uh, people who inspire you. And there are aspirational mentors. They are two different. So there are mentors who you are very comfortable to talking. It could be your, your wife, your friend. They, uh, you know, they are just comforting. They're your confidants. So they will guide you in different ways. They will support you. They will understand you, but they will possibly not push you out of your comfort zone. They will not probably push you to take the risk because they know you. I think you need both. You need another mentor who can truly challenge you to get you out of the comfort zone. Because guess what? All the career breakthroughs you will get will be out of your comfort zone. You will have to take the step. Nobody's going to do it. The mentor the mentor will not dig the path for you. Mm-hmm. You will have to take, they will just show you the path that, okay, this is the way you have two choices. Do you want to do this or do you want to take this? And changing jobs is not easy also. So you have to have it inbuilt inside you to go into the path. Um, and always learn that, you know, once you experience being a men- mentee, eventually pay it forward, become a mentor again. Um, even, you know, at, at this stage of my career, I'm uh, like, what, 28 years into the career, I would still consider myself a mentee still. Mm-hmm. I am a mentor, but I am mentee too. I still learn from my daughter. My daughter is 23. She teaches me things about Instagram, which I don't know about. <laughs> you know, so you never, I think what I'm 
understanding is like you never stop learning. So you should never like I walked into Goop as an expert, but guess what? I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm learning makeup. I'm learning other areas of entrepreneurship. I'm learning sexual wellness. So there's a lot of things that you want to learn. Um, and I can, you know, I can go on. on with, I would have some advice also for some new people coming into the industry on how to self-promote themselves also. Yeah, please. I mean, that, that's, uh, you, you touched on some of that, but please continue that because I I, um, I love to have our guests talk to that, hopefully that, that next generation that's listening, my my kids that are also <laughs> coming along that watch, they make watch my show. Um, say, say a couple of words, especially for the net, you know, there, there's going to be people listening to this. They want to be uh, the next Akshay Tarati and, and follow in your path. Continue along that, especially with those that are really interested in STEM. Um, any yeah, other advice? Uh, so I think okay. So I it's very important, right? Because the there is a there has been a big shift in the workforce over the last 20, 30 years. The time when I joined, when your work spoke for itself. Yep. But today it's different. We are living in a world of uh, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok. People's attention spans are limited. And human perception is equally important as your work. So what I want to say here is that while your work is indeed indeed important, you need to work also the perception of what others have of you. You have to self-promote yourself. And don't think, and I know it's uncomfortable, especially for people who are from STEM, Oh, how can I stem? How can I uh, self-promote myself? I'm ethical. I'm science-based and all. So it does. It's a different concept, but yeah. you have to do it. And you have to find your avenue. Your avenue could be something. What I'm doing right now, networking. Join a trade show. Make more network. It could be social media. It could be LinkedIn. It, you can write an article. Join a conference. You know. Um, find mentors. So I think you have to spread your own word out. You have to be your own trumpet because who else is going to talk about you better than yourself? Um, and I think it's important. I think uh, people have to realize that it is very important um, and don't let labels and titles limit you. Sometimes, you know, you have a title of a chemist and you feel, but that's a product development job. That's a marketing job. I think we we live in an age that everybody's opinions and values are important. When I'm in a room of 20 people, I take advice and from everyone. It doesn't matter what their titles are. So don't be afraid to speak up. Of course, you can find your avenues on how to speak up, but find a way to share your ideas. Don't be afraid. When you are in the... Um, um, company lunchtime. Don't just sit at your desk and eat your lunch. I did that. Believe me. Me too. <laughs> Go to the cafeteria, sit with somebody you don't know, make networks, read something which nobody else is reading, uh, uh, learn something which nobody else is uh, learning. Try to broaden your skills and don't be afraid to put some extra hours, right? People think, oh, my five o'clock job is done. Of course, yes, you want work-life balance, but if you have to put one hour of your own to network on LinkedIn for yourself, do it. It's you're building your own career. Don't think, oh, it's my five o'clock. I'm not going to do anything. So even if you have to do a little bit more, do it. Um, and on, I think on something important on resume, um, 
most people, I get hundreds of resumes and people, most people scan the resumes within the first five minutes, yes or no. And if it's something interesting, then they deep dive into it. So I think what I'm saying is a lot of resumes almost look alike. People, especially in STEM, they highlight the professional um, uh, accomplishments. But I think what I want to tell is that don't only focus on your professional achievements on your resume, also put your personality on paper because the other reader does not know beyond your accomplishment, your degrees and your name, you have to uh, put on that paper who you are. And automatically once they get the resume, they will check your LinkedIn. So update your LinkedIn profile also. Standing. Um, actually, last, uh, last point, um, here we are, 2022, uh, coming out of the, coming out of the pandemic, um, getting, moving from virtual back to, uh, the real world. Where can we follow you, run into you, uh, conferences you're going to be speaking at, uh, societies you're going to be, uh, making, a uh, a presence at, uh, where can we run into Akshay Talati in the coming months and, and yeah. any, uh, any other hot stuff that's coming up for the year that you want to mention, please think the floor. Yeah. So of course you will find me active in the industry. You will find me writing articles for Skindy. Um, you know, bringing new topics out in Skindy, uh, touching topics, controversial topics, example, like microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wrote two articles for the Euro Cosmetics magazine. One of them will be published in um, um, April uh, at the occasion of In Cosmetics. And the second article will be published in May at the occasion of New York Suppliers Day. So look look out for it. It is my vision of what I have gone through in my career, the future of the industry, the trends in the industry. Um, and I think um, where else you will see me, of course, I'm also part of the Committee of Scientific Affairs for Society of Cosmetic uh, Chemists. So you will see me speaking in um, December in Los Angeles. Uh, one of the other ambitions I have is I also want to run for a higher office for Society of Cosmetic Chemists. Um, so one day I see myself as being the president of the society. So, you know, because I think as I steadily grow um, and do voluntary, that's something that I want to aspire to do. Um, and in terms of my legacy, you know, um, I, I think my legacy is my network. And if anybody, a mentee approaches me, my network is your network. Um, the legacy that I have is the hundreds of innovation products that I've already created and launched. Um, But the next step for me would be, I think it is something that uh, I have aspired over the last probably five years is something uh, that driving me, it may come, I don't know when it's entrepreneurship. Um, And again, it was through a mentor. When I joined Murad, Dr. Murad, told me that Akshay, I see something of you in me. And um, he said that he started Murad when he was 50 years. So today, and he told me when I left uh, Murad that actually one day I want you to start your own company or brand or whatever it is. So Skindy is just an avenue. So mm-hmm. I started Skindy as a co-founded Skindy last year when I was 51. I'm 52 now. And I still think that I have a lots of years left. And I want to pursue the great advice Dr. Murad gave me. Awesome. 
Awesome. Uh, I'm 53, and I think I'm <laughs> we're going along the same path there. So I I hold out that you will definitely uh, uh, have that success. Uh, you know, both you know, not just what you're doing, but a- anything you touch is is going to be successful. So it's going to be exciting to uh, to keep watching everything you do in wellness and lifestyle. Uh, really fascinating journey um, for. For everybody that is going to be listening to uh, this particular episode across the various podcast networks or watching on a YouTube channel, uh, you've been spending time with the amazing, multi-talented Akshay Talati, Vice President, Product Development, Research and Innovation, Regulatory Sciences, Beauty and Wellness Division of Goop. Um, actually, I want to thank you for taking so much time out of your schedule to to come talk and mentor us on, on this fascinating area. Obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing over the decades. Uh, and as we say on this show, um, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through what you've been doing. Uh, it's a really wonderful story. Thank you, Ira. And thank you for all the listeners and viewers. Yeah. Please reach out to me. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I can share my network. I can guide you or I can help you along the way. And maybe in the mean in the in the process, I'll I will learn something from you. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. See you soon. Thank you.